Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 37 of the podcast, the topic is the future of online learning. Our guest is Furkan Naziri, partner at Extension Engine, the online education platform consulting firm. In this conversation, we talk about what learning is all about, how COVID-19 both validates and facilitates online learning. We discuss online learning platforms, the best approaches at the moment, and where we are headed in the next decade. Quick word from our sponsor. Do you have business challenges where you would like high-quality external input from experts? Yegi is an insight network with access to on-demand teams made up of select talent from thousands of experts across industries and market. Check out Yegi at archives.yegi.com. That's Y-E-G-I-I. Furkan, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great. Good morning, and uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, first off, Furkan, you have a super exciting background in terms of, uh, well, online education, a lot of other things. You've, you've been working for a bunch of different companies, uh, some of them startups, some of them me- medium-sized. You've been in private equity. You have been uh, at SoftBank uh, as a, an entrepreneur in residence. And uh, your educational background is, uh, you know, engineering. And I know there are some stories there from aerospace back at the uh, University of Michigan. And then you got your MBA at Harvard, which is uh, obviously an uh, excellent school for, for those kinds of things. My question to all my guests for Khan is this. You know, usually uh, my guests are pretty accomplished. So the, the real question to me is, is this, you know, you've done many, many things. What, what is more important to you now? And what do you really think of as the most formative thing that you've done, whether it is schooling or in your professional background? Well, uh, so you're starting out with the big questions, I, I see, so, which is great. So, I, you know, the funny thing um, is I took a wandering path. So, I, you know, the topic today I hope we get to dive into is uh, online learning and, and what that means today and over the next, you know, 10 years or so. Uh, I came to this um, in, a, in a very wandering path. So my, my undergrad degree was in aerospace engineering um, I worked on building electric cars, um, passenger electric cars before it was cool back in the 90s, um, Harvard Business School, and then a decade as tech entrepreneur. So um, uh, the um, so uh, you know tech entrepreneur, you know uh, for for the better part of a decade, and then I switched uh, into um, online learning. And this was, yeah. I guess, 11 years ago. Um, and so I came to it um, and my real passion, what I discovered having, you know, worked in advanced technology, the EVs and, and as a tech entrepreneur was I love to learn. It's my favorite thing to do. When I'm down, I, I just, I, I get consumed in, in reading and in uh, eventually online learning. I've taken maybe 150, 200 online courses, not because it's for my work, but because I love it. And so wow. for me, um, I just love learning and I love learning about learning. And so my job 
is a job, but it's actually my my uh, my hobby as well. That that's great to hear. I am also actually also fascinated by learning. So so hopefully we'll we'll uh, sh- share some experiences around that. Let, let's jump into another really big question for Khan. Uh, let's jump into online learning. What what is online learning to you? How do you actually define it at a base level? Well, online learning is um, is often described in part of what it isn't. So it's not. Uh, it is learning. So it's the ability of imparting knowledge from you know uh, to to a person. The ability to to understand something they don't previously understand. Um, um, and it's without having in-person instruction. Um, and oftentimes it's without having um, live uh, instruction, it, although it can be um, uh, the latter. And so online learning is uh, similar in a lot of ways to what we think of as traditional in-person learning, but it has a, a huge, um, has many, many differences. And one of the biggest ones that I think probably everybody is now familiar with, and I've been talking about for 10 years, is um, what we consider learning is actually a bundle. And it doesn't matter if it's K-12 or um, higher education or even adult learning in the workforce. Um, um, online or learning is a bundle, and it includes the instruction. So like, what, what material am I learning? Um, it includes things like a calendar, a schedule, the ability to kind of have a beginning and an end. And so um, there's incentives and motivation. There's um, uh, uh, peer interaction and social activities. So there's a lot of pieces of, of learning that, um, uh, that bundle. And, and when we translate that from in-person to online, we have to think about all those pieces of the bundle, not just the instructional piece. Hmm. And and how would you say this topic has evolved? Because as you pointed out, you've been talking about this for ten years. When did people start talking about un, you know about online learning in in earnest? Uh, well, it depends on how far you want to go back. I mean, certainly in the '90s, online learning was was certainly a topic. In the first internet boom, there were a bunch of online companies. But even going back further than that, there were. Um, you know, at least three revolutions in what they called correspondence learning, which is the predecessor of online learning. So that was TV was a big thing, like the whole learn via VHS and DVDs, um, which many people saw in their sure. 80s. Prior to that, there was learning via radio. That was a huge thing in the, in the 30s and 40s. They had literally classes. And then even before that, with the advent of the, the postal system, there was correspondence school where you were writing letters back and forth. So online or remote learning goes all the way back to the you know 1800s, if not before. Uh, the current uh, online using the internet, you know, started in the 90s, and I would say there was first generation that probably went from late 90s to maybe I would call 2010s, so to 12, 13, something like that, and that was pretty much uh, what we call filming a play and calling it a movie this idea that you could record a classroom and then play that, you know, lecture online. And then starting around 2012, 13 with the advent of um, these things called MOOCs. So massive open online courses, there was a lot of attention and that's when people started to say, well, how might we do this differently? How might we design learning for online and take advantage of all the tools that it has and not just sort of copy in person. And that's the current kind of phase that we're in. Um, 
when we started out, you know, uh, seven, eight years ago doing online learning, it was like no one would listen to us when we talked about how you could do it differently and how there were, um, you know, we could make it unique and better in some ways than in person. And of course, now I think with, with COVID and sort of the everybody experiencing that sort of online lecture, there's a lot more interest in things like social interactivity, act, active kind of construction, you know, learn by doing um, things that make great online learning. And so I think we're about to embark on what I think is a new phase. Well, I'm very interested in this new phase. And I think you said, you know, we are doing it, but it doesn't strike me that everybody has moved on to this phase, even though you 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 started at a certain point and you said, you know, MOOCs around 2012, but not everybody knew what that was, know what it is now, mm-hmm. or indeed have taken on board what it means for learning. And I'm, I guess, also thinking about the mainstream school system in the various countries where I have some access to what's going on right now. But would you, uh, for the benefit of just explaining where the state of the art really is right now, wh- why don't you take us through what exactly is it that is possible right now in 2020 when it comes to online learning that's distinct from what wasn't possible before and give us a little peek into some of the reality of the things that you are implementing right now. Absolutely. Um, I think before we jump into that, we, I need to introduce um, a, a, a fancy term uh, that we'll talk for a minute about called pedagogy. Yep. And that's, um, so pedagogy is a, just a fancy way of saying um, a way of teaching. And right. there are different types of pedagogy. So the one that everybody's familiar with, I think, is the lecture. Um, and there are even fancier words for it. So didactic learning. Um, I should say um, I'm a lay person when it comes to all this stuff. I've learned it by doing it. Um, so that, so, so um, lecture-based is, is one sort of pedagogy, and it's the most efficient for teaching, but it's actually pretty poor for learning. So it's great for a teacher, but not that good for, for, um, for students. There are other types of pedagogy. So one that um, people have probably heard of is the Socratic method. It's a much more interactive sort of dialogue-based um, questions and answers um, there's um, more social-based learning. And, and, and so there's different pedagogies. And um, sort of the way our school systems evolved, they, they, they had sort of a, a engineering industrial sort of production-based uh, thing where that lent themselves towards um, the lecture and efficiency in teaching. And so a lot of what we see uh, in the online is it's sort of copies of that. So that, so this idea that there's an instructor on a video imparting some knowledge, the sage on the stage model. Can I ask you a question around yeah. that, Furkan? Are yeah. you saying that the lecture is a now should be considered an old, outdated format, or in its present form, it cannot be simply digitized, neither on video nor on you know a media that's very popular these days is podcasts and i would i would sort of assume that you could in some ways impart some of the lecture concept to a podcast literally reading a lecture a little easier than you perhaps could cuz you you sort of already foreshadowed this that just videoing a lecture isn't really learning uh, or or at least less efficient or effective than than listening to a person live where 
where you obviously can interrupt, but you can also, I guess, see and get the cues differently. But but so, what is your thinking on on the lecture? Is it essentially a dying format for online, or should be for online learning, or how does it change? I, I think it changes. Lectures have been around forever, and they're going to be around, you know, for as long as humans exist in our form. Um, but I think that. Um, it has its place, and what the the exciting thing about online is it is it uh, really fundamentally enables um, other models of of other pedagogies of learning that didn't really work at scale prior to the internet. So everyone talks about the Socratic method, literally around for two thousand years, and it's this idea that you have you know the world's expert in front of you with you know two five um, you know ten students, and then, and you can have that intimate you know experience, obviously difficult at scale in person, right? There's only one expert, world's expert. But when you um, uh, can have online learning, there are ways to translate that and get greater scale. Um, but also even the lecture can be improved. I mean, you mentioned like, you know, doesn't literally have to be a video. It could be, um, you know, uh, a podcast. It could be um, uh, the ability, for example, to pause a lecture and re- replay it. That's really important. You know, the, the professor... You know, it's what, really powerful and it improves on the lecture. Completely improves it. And it's a simple thing. So so in some ways, online can be better um, than in person. And obviously, in some ways, it's, it's, it's inferior. Um, so what I see is the lecture will continue to be a part of learning, but we're sort of opening up the toolbox and bringing in additional tools. One of my favorite yeah. is um, action learning. So the ability to... Um, do things and and to learn from making mistakes, which is really the first form of learning. Like when babies, you know, first learn, they learn by doing something, making a mistake, and learning from it. And so, in a lot of ways, we're bringing back kind of that type of learning that everybody knows. Um, I think there's also um, some exciting um, opportunities around uh, social learning. So, so having it be more engaging. I think a lecture. Uh, can be a very lonely experience as a student. Um, in, a, in an online, it can be even more lonely. And so engaging, um, those, you know, especially those two things, so action learning and uh, uh, social learning, so having group-based uh, projects online, I think is really exciting. And so... I was going to ask you about that because you would... You would, I mean, this was one of the criticism at, uh, of learning uh, before you even introduced online, right? That it wasn't social enough and it wasn't action oriented enough. But how do you make those two things happen online in a in a even better way? Given that there are some limitations also of the medium, so give us a little sense of yeah. how social learning. I don't think that's readily apparent. Most people would say. Online has some advantages, like they probably would would say, okay, you can repeat things, you can click on, you know, there's more variety and all that stuff, and you can access learning from different places and more people, and they're thinking of, you know, YouTube videos where you can pick up stuff quickly. But the idea that you can actually do better social learning online, I think, is something you need to convince uh, me of, even. Yeah. Well, let me give you a specific example, and it's it's actually one of my favorite examples. Um, so, one of the um, organizations we've partnered with for a long time now is Harvard Business School. So, we helped design, build, and launch Harvard Business School online, um, which um, has a bunch of you know really interesting things about it. The the one of the most exciting things is Harvard Business School is really the 
the keeper of um, a pedagogy they call the case method. So it's a form of the Socratic method. It's a, it's a way of doing um, interactive um, learn by doing around a, a particular topic, which they call a case. And it has a bunch of, you know, I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar, at least um, maybe in person, but also uh, uh, from, from movies and books and things. There's this thing called the cold call this idea that you read a case and then the, the professor comes in and says, you know, Tron, can you tell me what, you know, Julie should do in this marketing example? And that sort of opens the case. So when we started out um, helping design and launch Harvard Business School Online, we had this idea of, of kind of creating the online version of the case method. And initially we we're like, well, okay, so it's going to have a cold call, just like in the classroom. And what we discovered over time was that we're like, hey, wait a minute there could be more than one cold call. Like, why do we only have to cold call one student, which is a real learning experience. Like it's motivation, you're scared, you have to, you have to prepare, it's an incentive, you have to present your idea. So it's a really great action-based learning experience, the cold call. But in a real classroom, you can only open a case with one cold call. You can't, you know, ask a, another student, you know, hey, Furkan, what, what do you think Julie should do in that scenario after Tron just went? And so... Um, yeah, because you gave discerning. Well, I the the first person gave some of the answers. You can of course say, well, you know, add some points, but you you lose that you lose that stress magic factor of the yeah for sure. yeah. But online, you can have multiple cold calls. So in some ways, the the online version, we you know, we didn't copy it exactly. We we created, a, I think, a better version of it. Um, one of the things that oh, wait, so how does that just uh, how does that even work? You, so you you're calling up all these people, and then what you present online to people who who read this is all of these multiple calls are are then recorded and presented to people, or are you just saying that as they're listening to something, when they get a call, they literally get a call, or they get called on, and they simultaneously have to answer this without access to the other people. Yeah, that's right. So there's this little bit of a, a, um, a embargo of the information. So in a classroom, physical classroom, you can't embargo sort of the, 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 the response to the cold call. But online, yeah. you can embargo it for, you know, even five minutes or 10 minutes. And so the cold call um, from HBS online is presented, the student gets like literally a timer. So they have to answer you know, in a particular period of time and respond. Oh, and I understand you're talking about live learning. This is a case that's ongoing, you know, like Monday morning, 8, 8 a.m. lecture. Uh, it can be, it, yeah, it, it actually, um, um, it's, it can be what they call synchronous or asynchronous. And so there we still have this, it can be both. Um, but you yeah. can embargo that for a little bit um, uh, in, in multiple, you know, you can have multiple cold calls. Um, so that's an example of, of like innovative online learning. I want to give one more example um, that's sort of related to that, which is, um, you know, I mentioned earlier, I've taken like, I don't know, probably close to 200 online courses. And um, uh, the, my favorite actually is a class uh, by Harvard Business School Online uh, called uh, Negotiations Mastery. And so if anybody's ever taken a negotiations class or read a book, there's all these terms like ZOPA, you know, and, and BATNA, you know, these are like technical terms for working through a negotiation. And then there's strategies on how to do it and tactics. The thing I love about this online class is uh, I think you start out and there's maybe a five minute sort of intro video by the professor. 
and then immediately you're dropped into a negotiation. You don't really know what's going on. You're just trying to negotiate like purchasing a house. I forget what it is. And then you go through, you you have this experience, and of course you fail miserably, um, which is you know how the thing works. And then you're you get to have this discussion with all your classmates who just went through the same experience. And you're like, what happened there? And then they introduce the idea of a batna, best alternative to a negotiated agreement. Now, of course, you you viscerally understand what that means because you literally just failed in your negotiation, and so you understand what a what what that idea of a batna is. That's a different kind of learning experience than if I go right on the board, BATNA, and I define the term and there's a lecture around it. And I get excited around those kinds of things where, like in the negotiation class, you negotiate against the computer, you negotiate against your peers, there's multi-party negotiations, and it's interwoven with like expert, you know, FBI's, you know, hostage, chief hostage negotiator. So you see experts, you see peers and, and the faculty. To me, that's great online learning. It's it's interesting what you said there because it reminds me that there actually is a slight distinction between the, the this type of experience is is also called experiential learning, right? But but what you're pointing out here is uh, I think action and experience are slightly different, right? Because when you're taking it all the way to action, you actually also I guess want to apply it to your to someone to a client or to to a context. But experiential is generally just the fact that you actually get your own uh, experience around it and then remember it better but action learning i guess also uh, at least the way that it's uh, taught in at MIT which i know and other places it implies that you actually have an action context meaning you know uh, in in courses we were teaching at the management school there you truly have a client so not only are you getting the experience the client is also getting the experience and if you don't act not only do you sort of fail in a theoretical sense, you're actually theoretically, you know, you you might mess up some stuff in the real world. So, so these concepts are all kind of intermixed, but 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 interesting anyway. So yeah, and if I could just add one really thing, because I think you touched on something that's that's uh, phenomenally important, which is when we think of learning. Um, you know, the first thing that people react or, you know, kind of go back to is, is K-12 um, and, and higher ed, which is um, a type of learning that I call toolbox learning. It's this idea that you learn certain concepts and, and tools, if you will. You understand them. You have a high stakes kind of test like that sort of assesses whether you, you have that skill at that moment. And then you basically put that tool in a toolbox and it rests there for maybe forever or maybe till the next class or maybe until 10 years later when you're in the workforce and you can kind of recall at least that that tool exists and you can go look up how to use it. So that's what I call toolbox learning. And everybody knows this. There's a syllabus, a curriculum, week one, week two, things like that. Um, of course, there's big complaints around it too because everybody asks, every student asks, uh, you know, when am I going to use this? Um, that's very different from um, adult learning right, where you're looking for an outcome, because most learning happens uh, in the world after, you know, K-12 or, or higher ed, when you're actually trying to do something and you have to, you have a skills gap or a knowledge gap, and you have to learn something in order to do the thing you want to do. That is what I call outcomes learning. And it's where the learner has a very specific outcome they're looking for. Like, I want to produce this uh, report. I want to sell this 
uh, deal. I want to launch a new innovative product. And they're interested in learning the minimum required to achieve that outcome. And they don't really care if it's um, a tool that goes in the toolbox. They just want the outcome. It can be throwaway learning oftentimes. And what we find is those two different kinds of learning. It's it's oftentimes a mix. Uh, So you want a bit of both. Um, But but that outcomes-based learning is a very different kind of experience than the toolbox learning. Different tools, different systems for delivering it, different business models. Um, and, and so as a company, um, my firm, we, we do both of those, but we actually have much more of a, a um, kind of bias towards that outcomes learning, which is really where I think a lot of, uh, a lot of interest is and people want to change that. It's, and frankly, it's easier to change because it doesn't come with all the regulatory overhead of K-12 and higher ed. So I'm hesitant to introduce even one more term, but I wanted to bring it up with you because I've been experiencing it myself and reading more about it and thinking more about it. There's this term micro-learning. Um, now, it has been copyrighted, so it's a little complicated for that reason. But but anyway, I think it refers broadly. I mean, you, you explain it. You're the expert. I'm curious about what that really is. So let me open it up to you. Micro-learning. What, what do you think about it? What is it? Is it uh, useful? Is it overvalued? What is it? Explain it to people because I actually thought I kind of knew what it was, but as I read more about it, I, I don't, qu- I didn't quite, I hadn't quite understood it. Yeah. Well, so to be totally honest, I, you, you might be more the expert on this than I, so I didn't even know it was trademarked, which is actually almost hysterical. Um, but I think that, so the problem with learning is, um, or one of the challenges with learning is what's the appropriate chunk of learning? Um, and so, yeah. you know, people talk about, um, a grade level, they talk about, a, 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 a certi- certification, like a baccalaureate or a master's or PhD, um, in, in the working world, there's, there's, uh, bundles of learning around like a certification. So MSCE is like a technical thing for a Microsoft thing. So there's these bundle, you know, what is the appropriate bundle of learning? And people kind of go, well, it's gotta be big enough. It's gotta be, it can't be too big. It can't be too small a bit of a Goldilocks pair, you know, problem. Like, you know, if it's too big, you know, no one will complete it. If it's too small, like, what do you learn? So everybody's yeah. looking for that sort of optimal bundle or unit of learning. And I think the reality of it is it, it, there isn't a one size fits all. So I'm personally quite skeptical when someone comes in and says like, Oh, the right thing is micro learning. It's three minute videos. And, and that's the, that's the magical unit of learning because for me, I, I just get warmed up in three minutes. Like I have, I, it takes three minutes to clear my mind and start thinking. So, so interesting. You're pointing this out for Khan because I think that so many things that are influenced by kind of the first wave of something on the internet assumes that we all are one, like, Oh, the internet brings this and the internet is this and we are that. So then of course the answer is C but we all are different. So there's this personalization in there too that kind of gets lost just because something gets so magically, you know, get like millions of views, then everyone says, oh, you've got to learn this in three-minute chunks. Yeah. But it's not the answer to everything. Absolutely. It, it can spread messages enormously rapidly, right? I mean, you know. Totally. And what's going to blow your mind is that some of these like uh, – uh, forces in the design of, of learning or online learning, they are contradictory. 
So for example, personalization, which is what you're talking about, this ability that I could give you exactly the right sort of instructional content, assessment items, and, and, and timing just for you. I can optimize it for you using like artificial intelligence and algorithm. companies have you know, built businesses around this. Yes. Um, it turns out that works really well for some people, but other people are like social, like they just like to talk to people. They're extroverts and, and they, they learn yeah. by talking through it with other people. Well, if you personalize, and not necessarily in like a computer and not necessarily, sequence. you know, computer, yeah. but, but the, one of the challenges is, um, personalization, like making it exactly for you fights against the idea of social, like taking a group of people who can move through content together as a as a social group and so how do you find that balance between personalization and social learning so this is the challenge i think where um you know this is i would call the frontier of innovation around online learning right now is is looking at how how can you uh design an experience to get the best overall outcomes in general but also great outcomes individually you know it it there are so many ways that we could take this, but we, we need to eventually get to kind of what seems to be happening, you know, going forward. But I wanted to maybe ask you just a couple of things about, you know, what this current moment does to all of the things we're, we're talking about. So there's COVID, which everyone thinks is something in a, history of learning like everyone says the covid means this what does covid do to your field what has it done so far and what is it doing to your business at this moment so covid happened bam here we are eight months into it covid's still here in various ways what is it doing what did it do like what how how quickly did it hit your organization and your clients what what are they thinking about this what are they I mean, you, you know, you work with universities mm. and I'm assuming you work with uh, maybe some K through 12 uh, organizations. What's the impact? Well, it, the, the impact of COVID has been massive um, and, and in ways that I wouldn't have, well, no one predicted any of this, but I, certainly I didn't even um, after it became clear that there was going to be some remote learning for, for quite a while, um, the changes have been dramatic. So. One of the things is I think um, maybe just step back one real quick. So we, we serve three different types of clients. So all creating these custom online learning experiences. So the idea that there's a learning platform, there's instructional content, how do you recruit and, and retain learners in the programs? And then how do you build the capacity to be successful running that online program? So that, that's what we do. We have three different kinds of clients that we work with. So higher ed are one. So we work with universities, um, in various kinds of program for credit, not for credit, if that means things to people. And then um, we have uh, two other segments. So one are nonprofit organizations. So these are organizations other than universities that have teaching and learning as part of what they do. So for example, imagine an organization that works with 10,000 um, instructors or counselors or coaches, and they help um, opportunity youth. Um, so 18 to 24 year olds without a professional job, not at school. So they help them kind of get out of the, the cycle of poverty um, and onto a professional career track. So that type of a organization has historically relied on in-person training. 
exclusively. Like there's no online learning. It's a learning experience, but it's, it's outcomes-based learning. So those organizations are desperately in need of support. Um, and, and so we've, we've seen a tremendous uh, need there. Uh, and, and, and frankly, the, the underlying uh, stakeholders, the people who need the help, they need help now more than ever as well. And then there are learning businesses. So think of all the myriad of training companies that have in-person, face-to-face learning that that now can't do that, whether it's an international business. So think, um, um, you know, training businesses or even consulting companies like a McKinsey, you know, like if you have to engage with clients and you can't travel, like how do you actually do that? So all three of those kind of sectors have really big needs right now. Uh, universities are focused on um, what we call large lecture conversion. So this you can't have a lecture with over 30 s- students now um, for probably a year. So figuring out how to do that. And some of these universities have a catalog of like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of courses that fit in that category. Um, yeah. And and frankly, there's not much innovation happening in large right there because it's just, okay, I have to convert this over um, I have 15% of my students are international. They are not going to get a visa for a year or two. So how do I handle so, that? So even, even for, for you, there's not much you can do with those. Like if, there's a, if there are a thousand students, they need a certain curriculum. It is this kind of toolbox type learning. It's a 101 course. It's usually taught in kind of the most pedestrian way possible, yeah. ideally with like some inspired teacher, but very little interactivity. You, you can't do much about that beyond, like you said, chunk it up a little so they can repeat if they don't understand the concept because it's digital. So that's a Yeah. Good and what I would say is our, our sort of the leading innovators in this. So, so a lot of the, you know, R1 or the, you know, elite schools, they recognize this challenge. And so... Uh, we've partnered with a number of them to work with their faculty on on helping them understand best practices, right? So you can have yeah. a lecture and still have it be an online lecture, but you don't have to, you know, it can be better. So we we, we do a lot of training around what good looks like. So yeah. this this kind of podcast is is the kind of conversation we have with faculty. At, at those leading Well, right, because a conversation would seem to, like, it, it is kind of counterintuitive that a podcast even exists, right? Because we have been taught by many futurists, you know, in my profession, that the world is moving faster and faster. And whether it is or whether it's not, a podcast is kind of counterintuitive. Here you're listening to people for hours on end, but it is a conversation usually. Yeah, and it's a and different kind it's of not, con- It's yeah. a non-immersive type of medium where you can do other things, you can go running and it sort of enters your brain in this very weird way. I'm, I'm per- personally very fascinated by how you can stretch different uh, mediums and different sensory capacities and, and then enact learning th- through that way. So do, do you think that uh, the auditory channel is, or you know, has been kind of neglected? Uh, one, one, so after radio got competition from TV, it got crowded out. And then now it's coming back with sort of with a vengeance, basically, right? I think that's right. And I think it has, I mean, we'll have to see where this lands. But um, prior to COVID, the thing that I found really fascinating about uh, podcasts and audio learning is it unlocks, um, I I was fascinated by um, uh, underutilized assets. So like Airbnb is, you know, the back bedroom and, and Uber is the, the car that sits there 95% of the time. So one of the biggest unutilized learning assets is the commute. 
and, you know, and, and NPR, you know, took a piece of that. Um, but, you know, music takes a piece. Um, and I forget what the numbers are. It's about billions of hours were spent, you know, commuting pre-COVID. Um, and, and so podcasts, I think, are really interesting access to that, you know, uh, to unlock that, that set of learning. And, and it's a good example of like a lecture wouldn't have worked there with a video lecture. So, so it's, but, dis- but you know, it has so many more hours for comp because think about it. I mean, I, and, and I'm a recent convert, maybe I'll tire of this, but you know, you wake up in the morning, you don't want to wake up, uh, you know, whoever you're sleeping with, you don't want to really get out of bed, but you kind of want to start the day, turn on a podcast, right? Like totally. It's an instant of light and then no one disturbs you trying to go to bed. Put on a podcast. Totally. Going exercise, for a ride, yeah. tired of music, yeah, exercising, right? So there's so many micro moments. They're not really micro moments. They're literally chunks of 45 minutes that you have throughout yeah. the day. And I feel like mobile so is a similar kind of use case uh, or behavior. So having, for example, if you've ever used like Duolingo or Wanikani um, or any of the language learning tools out there, like it's this ability to, to kind of, uh, do reinforcement learning and, and, and engage in a way that, that uh, works. And I think the best learning experiences are going to be multimodal. So you'll have a bit of a kind of audible podcast, you'll have your mobile learning, and then you'll have your, your, your you know, laptop-based kind of learning. And frankly, in-person or live as well. Like, like there's no reason, it, you know, it can't be uh, seamless like that. Um, and part of what's happening now is learning scientists are, um, or what I call instructional designers are, are saying, this is the, the learning experience that we want to have. How can we use technology to deliver that as opposed to, you know, 10 years ago, it'd be like, Hey, here's a tool that got built. What can we teach with that tool? It's like flipping the Look, model around. It's yes, it's so powerful. But you you introduced two terms that I, I'm not entirely sure everybody really is up on. So you said reinforcement learning. It's something that for me, unfortunately, now rings of machine learning. But but explain what you mean in this pedagogy context. It's just a simple thing. Language learning is a um, is a, um, a a good example of it. And you know, pardon the professionals out there if I get this not exactly perfect, but it's the idea that when you learn something, there's a decay of that learning. And so um, coming back, if you've ever done any language learning, you learn some words, you play with them, you use them. And then like a month later, you kind of reinforce them. Um, Got it. And the the other idea is, um, is an entire industry around this that I had never heard of uh, before getting into this world 10 years ago is instructional designer. It's this idea that there's a, um, a learning experience is designed and it's a different skill set than being the subject matter expert. Like I can be the world's expert on, you know, high energy nuclear physics, but that doesn't necessarily mean I know how to teach it. And so the instructional yeah. designer has all these kind of understandings of, of, you know, the theory of learning and, and pedagogy and, and, and the tools uh, to make but that. And you also said experience. multimodal. And and what are the modes that you right now are using, you know, with clients? And and also, you know, as we're now entering kind of a segment where I want to kind of look at futuristic applications. So let's talk about the breadth of uh of of modes that you find more useful right now. And then let's start moving into some emerging modes that you think will become increasingly possible. So let's first cover some of the modes that you think if uh, let's let's take a use case. Let's say you were, and I don't know if you you do work. You said mostly with higher education. But let's just say a country comes to you and says we are 
really thinking big thoughts. We, we, we're going to implement massive changes. We have budget. Um, what are some things we should be thinking uh, about in terms of the modes we need to uh, plan for? Yeah. And, so, uh, yeah. I, so um, there are quite a few, but the two, the, the couple of the big ones. So one is um, we call synchronous or asynchronous. So it's this idea of, of live, like we are right now, um, yep. or um, asynchronous where you can interact individually and it um, can happen sequentially. So you can go on and do a, for example, half a negotiation. And then an hour later I could go on and do the other half of the negotiation versus live when we're like, Hey, Trond, you know, I bid 36. What do you think? So you can have yeah. a synchronous and asynchronous. Um, and some of the best learning experiences blend those two. Um, yeah. And then another um, really interesting mode is uh, mobile versus, um, you know, sort of laptop learning. And I think mobile is best thought of as a behavior, not sort of a browser um, size. And that behavior is thinking about like, what is that person doing? Right. So it's not necessarily that they're on their phone. It's like, Oh, is this person on the subway? Are they, you know, um, are they exercising? You know, do you have their attention, you know, uh, at the screen or do you have their audible attention? So thinking about mobile as a behavior and, 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 you know, nowadays with all the social media and, and mobile tools, um, you know, learners expect that kind of mobile behavior to be part of the learning experience. And that's not yet yeah. made it, you know, into a lot of learning experiences. Um, yeah. I think um, there are also um, modes that get into modes of learning that get into more of the pedagogical model. But I would say in terms of technology, those would be kind of the two big ones. Hmm. And, and going forward, you know, I think in this podcast, a lot about the next decade, just because it's actually not that far away. And, you know, if you are planning at all to implement complex things like learning tools, you know, you have to think a little bit ahead because you, you can't afford to do this every month and every year. What are some of the modes apart from sort of generically mobile and other things? I mean, do you see a space within learning technologies for augmented reality type applications are there other things that you're seeing on the horizon being discussed in the community that you might even think of putting in your toolkit for the next few years? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the, the augmented reality and virtual reality, uh, the only place we've seen those at any reasonable scale are in um, uh things like the medical field, engineering. So very, you know, professional, you know, post, post kind of higher ed learning. We haven't seen any K-12 yeah. or higher ed uh, that justify the economics of, of those today. Um, yeah. They're very expensive. And so you have to have and, a- And what are they used for in more specialized training? I mean, flight simulators is something where, you know, and that's, you that's, know, that's not even decades, this, yeah. this thing. Yeah. It's been, a de- you know, that has been an augmented reality setup for, for ages. Because how else are you, you know, flight simulator, what is that? It's augmented. It's the best use case, perhaps, that I know of augmented reality. That, you know, you're essentially bringing in as many flight-like scenarios and you, you know, you shake people up. And most people might have been to Disney World or something and and gotten a little sense of what that can mean, at least on the physical level, when you get get shook up like that. But, uh, But, you know, with all the controls and all the manipulations... But uh, so it's specialty engineering training and professional training and, and medical. Yeah. 
but I would say uh, it's high there are a lot of medical doctors, right? You know, so you, this, if you do put it into a learning context, there is, you know, as you're broadening that beyond very, very specialty cases. I mean, there are a lot of doctors being trained every year. So if you if you actually can use it for a big course in that field, that I think would be a game changer. Yeah, so so the, I think there's two big things that drive the adoption of a technology like uh, virtual reality. So one is um, what we talked about. So it's a high value learner, um, right? You know, so it's got to be somebody uh, who to learn something, whatever that is, is, is super valuable. And then the other one is what they traditionally call the three D's. So it's uh, dirty, dangerous, or dull. And you know, like the flight, the flight training, you know, is could be. Um, you know, at least two of those three in, you know, surgery. So, the, the, you know, military training, um, um, you know, space. So there, there's a lot of things that, you know, fall into, the, you know, those two categories. I, I, you know, we're not going to see it, um, like I said, in K-12 for until the costs, you know, become de minimis. One of the things, uh, Tron, when I think of the next 10 years is um, motivations and incentives. And yes. that's actually where, um, I think COVID is, is a fascinating singularity in an otherwise secular trend of the say that digitization yeah. of learning. Um, right. You know, because if you go back and look at um, industries, you know, largely, so, you know, con- retail, you know, I, the stats that I've seen, you know, retail is something like, what, 20% digital? It might be even more now with, with, with COVID, um, kind of the drop off of in-person, um, travel, you know, travel bookings went to like, you know, 80%, you know, digital, you know, music and entertainment is, you know, a hundred percent now in COVID, but you know, it was in the nineties. Um, healthcare is something like last number I saw was like 8% or something. And education is in that same bucket of really low single digit kind of percent, you know, digital delivery. And, that's a secular trend. Like it's been marching over time, right? As these, it's these industries become more digital. I think for me, COVID is a bit of a singularity where it kind of changes some of the regulatory and, and um, the mind shift around it. So a lot of the regulatory rules have been lifted. So for example, um, you know, the ABA, the American Bar Association uh, doesn't allow, I think more than 10% of instruction to be correspondence. So for law schools, you can't teach online historically. Yes. Now, I'm pretty sure that they're allowing law schools to teach online for the next year. Otherwise, we're not going to have any lawyers at all. So yep. uh, I think that COVID is changing some of the rules and, and that's enabling. Um, and I also think that, you know, despite all of the, um, you know, downsides of online learning, everybody's familiar with it. Like we went through this whole thing and everybody's tasted spam, right? Like that 1940s military meal that, you know, everybody's had it. Um, and so everybody knows what it is and it's kind of bad. Some people really like it, but it's, it's sort of spawned like a new interest in, in sort of ready-made food. So, you know, you can go back and argue that spam is what created the fast food industry. Um, and so I think there's a similar kind of argument where this, this event, you know, not a war, well, in some ways a war against this disease is sort of rethought 
online learning. Everybody had a bad experience, and now we're going to go create the good things, right? So out of this, well, and will up. we? And will we do it? Is the question. You know, it's funny. I woke up this morning thinking about our, our the conversation we were going to have, and I had this sort of vision in my head. And you'd correct me if it's a. I, you just reminded me of it because I was thinking, you know, maybe learning is where food was in the 18th century. I mean, I, and I was thinking about personalization and I was thinking about actually just the fact that, you know, before you had recipes and before you had celebrity chefs and before you really had cooking schools, all you had was, we're eating because, well, you know, I was just sophisticated enough because we, we need to eat, um, because we want to be social when we eat. So there were some really important things happening during the meals. And I'm sure there were some really gourmet meals served in the past. But over and beyond, there was also a lot of very average meals served. And my sense is we are in an era where there aren't that many average meals served, at least in you know, in the part of the world where you have access to to ingredients, plus all the instructional stuff, and you start kind of caring about things like portioning and ingredients, like how much of this goes into it in order to make a good dish. Like, aren't we in learning so far in a phase where it's like, you know, everything is just not really portioned out. It's just, you know, more of this is better. You know, let's do like massive amounts of video. Like you, you would never throw massive amounts of even like dark chocolate into a dish if the dark chocolate was just an element in the dish. So as much as I love dark chocolate from Belgium, I mean, I wouldn't dream of putting two-thirds dark chocolate into, you know, a dessert dish that was just going to have a hint of dark chocolate. Yeah. I know, it's, wow. It sounds stupid, but I mean, no, what I'm trying I, to say is we could be at a moment where we're starting to figure out you know what's more and what's uh, less in, in you know in the mix here. Yeah, it's funny because um, I love metaphors, and and this is just a wonderful one that I think could go in so many directions. The thing about learning is it's both required and um, optional, right? So it's and I think I think food is 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 also that way, right? Like it's something you have right. to have, but it's also something you 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 can you know, make wonderful. And so much of the past of learning has been focused on the have to have it's eating gruel and you, you know, you, you eating your vegetables and, and oftentimes, and I always make this metaphor, like we'll go, to, we'll go to, uh, um, you know, some organization and they'll say, well, we want great online learning. We want our students to love it. And then we'll be like, well, you know, learning's hard, you know, it's like eating your broccoli. And then they're like, no, no, but we want it to be like chocolate. And then we're like, uh, you know, I, uh, you know, it's hard to do. And then they're like, okay, I got it. Chocolate covered broccoli. And then we're like, no, no, it, you know, this piece is hard. We can have dessert later. Um, and so, um, yeah. I and do, who wants chocolate covered? Well, actually that may, may be good, but there are many things you don't want together and you can't have them together. Yeah, right. And part of what's going on, you know, is we're running all the experiments and, you know, people are making chocolate covered broccoli and going, mm, that's not going to be mass market. I do think that um, the quality of food is getting better. The quality of learning is improving. The ingredients um, and, and the, the, the knowledge of cooking is, is on an exponential growth curve. Right. And that the learning over the last 20 years, um, when we look 20 years out, I think we're going to, um, you know, we, we're going to look at um, – how much things have improved and the, the, the outcomes I think are going to, 
become a lot better because we're going to be thinking more about the outcomes and less about the process. You know, in some ways, you are disappointing here, the sci-fi folks who are like listening into this podcast, hoping to hear about futuristic technology that's going to change learning. But in, in other ways, I think, you know, you are at the forefront of implementing learning at some of the best and biggest brands that are known for not just for their learning, but for for having, first of all, you know, their brand name institutions. That you, you've talked to me about some of them, right? McKinsey, uh, I know you've also worked, I think, with Smithsonian and other places that are really known in their fields. And yet, technology for you isn't left front and center. Is that because it just has to take a long time before a te- an instructional technology can become useful? It just needs to go down both in cost and complexity? Like you wouldn't dream of implementing something that is so experimental that it could fail. Is that why you're not talking up all these things? Or is it because it's just that the goal isn't to flash around with technology? The goal is the learning. And these technologies just aren't where it's at. Well, so here's the exciting and depressing uh, reality around this. So the, the honest answer is learning is about the brain. And um, we do not as society yet know how the brain works. So when we we look at learning, we're like putting some inputs and we stand back and we say, well, what comes out of the black box? And so when we develop tools, we're trying to reverse engineer how the brain works. So that's the depressing thing, because until we fully understand how the brain works, it's it's like we have no model to 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 design the tools. It's like trying I'm to so cure. glad you're saying this, but a lot of people would completely disagree. They're like, you know, there's nothing we have started to understand more. You know, the greatest mystery of mankind is the brain, but we have made so much progress over the last even just two decades, arguably, right? One camp would say that. And then the other camp says, well, actually, we have no idea. Are are you kind of in the we have no idea camp of this? I'm, 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 uh, we're in both camps because the reality of it is, you know, think of like medicine before we knew what DNA was. We were trying to reverse engineer like what happens. And so the fundamental uh, capacity of the brain to learn, like we just don't know yet how that works. Now, the good news is there is what was the human brain project. So it's like the human genome project and, you know, billions of dollars would be invested in mapping the brain and understanding that. I do believe over the next decade that we will gain a fundamentally um, better understanding of how the brain works. And that will enable us to build tools to better deliver um, learning to people. But it doesn't mean that we can't continue to innovate and and try things out. But in the meantime, but I think that is the fundamental thing. Yes, we've learned a lot, but, you know, we end up with all these contradictory like parallels. You know, it's like, Back before DNA, they'd say like, "Wash your hands, cough, and don't wear tight belts." You know, on your on your trousers. I literally read that when the, about the nineteen seventeen uh, pandemic, they, the the then equivalent of the CDC put out things saying, "You know, loosen your belt." And that's kind of how we are in online learning. Like people are saying, like, you know, watch short videos, you know, have interactive learning, and and do whatever the equivalent is of loosening your belt. Like it makes no difference, you know, in the medical outcome. And we still have a lot of that because we don't understand, you know, how the brain works. Well, let's not get into the pandemic. I think there's been a lot of um, 
didactic things that actually were from the 14th century that were presented to us as like these novel things. And for a while here, I was wondering if we had made any progress. But I think we we will come back as hum- humanity with a vengeance, you know, with vaccines and other things. Mm. Um, my question to you now is more, so right now, the digital learning world is a 2.5 billion, arguably, industry. What's going to change with that in the years to come? I mean, was this COVID thing such a singular event that it changes the ball game forever and kind of, I don't know, 10x, 100x is this industry, depending how you look at it, just because you have to now convert people onto something online that they have to do in parallel for X number of years, well, months to be conservative, but years if you're going to be honest about it, right? So you just, no matter what happens from here, if you're going to convert the population to online, including every institution, every school, every, every, everything to online, that's not going to be cheap. But on the other hand, you know, where's the money come from? So, so what do you, how do you see the growth of ed tech and online learning, even just in the next three years, as we're all scrambling, first of all, to realize, wait a second, this affects me. Mm-hmm. I don't have an online thing. Now I need to get it. I mean, is, is it going to, is it going to be a, a, a massive boon for players like yourself? Or is it also going to just, people going to lower their expectation and just kind of do something that they can do out of the box and, and not really worry too much about it? Um, I suspect um, online learning ultimately becomes a bit of like a utility. I, I think it. I think it becomes something that's part of everything. It's not necessarily a thing in and of itself because it currently is like this thing where you know it's like uh yes. those you know e-commerce companies back in the 90s i forget their names Scient, viant and bart you know there were these companies that would go like you know put the the e and you know the e-commerce in your retail exactly. company and that now they don't exist as companies and it's it's part of what every you know retail organization does is they have their online strategy and so i think online learning will be like that, you know, in five or 10 years where it's a part of every learning institution, every K-12 institution will have an online learning component. So like in, in the Northern States, you have snow days. I don't think snow days are going to, you know, this idea that you take a day off and there's no learning, like that won't exist. Um, you know, this winter. Well, that shouldn't <laughs> exist this year. I've been mad at snow days forever. Yeah. Even, you know, well, for different reasons, just because, you know, you could go and get in the snow. But I mean, right now, there's no reason to have a snow Absolutely. day. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so, so I think um, thing, it'll just become part of it, the, the toolbox of learning. It'll become a utility and, you know, okay, you're here in person, here, we'll do this and you're away, you'll do that. Um, so I think yeah. that's going to happen in K-12. It's definitely going to happen in higher ed, this idea that, you know, international students aren't going to be, you know, certainly not for the next year traveling. And that's something like 10 or 15% of us, um, you know, revenue at the top schools. So huge opportunity and need to do deliver online learning. And then think of the potential that unlocks where all of a sudden you'll have students around the world having easy access to world-class learning. Um, well, then that brings the question, though, what, what is it worth for Khan? And that's what's going to be a question I'm asking you. I think everybody is asking themselves. I have talked to some neighbors who are sending kids to, you know, the uh, the Ivy Leagues. And mm-hmm. uh, the Ivy League uh, have ma- emailed them back and say, well, guess what? We're, we've turned online or they've made it so uncomfortable to even think about going back on campus. 
costs. But uh, by the way, we're charging the same. Yeah. Right. I mean, this is an interesting. You know, quality matters, right? Think of think of you know the 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 uh, classifieds business for newspapers was a thirteen billion dollar industry that Craigslist turned into like a hundred million dollars, and then companies came along and they created much higher value. So all of a sudden, you have billion dollar businesses created around um, online dating. I mean, think of uh, if you go back to the newspapers, like a good chunk of those those ads were um, were newspaper dating. That business got reduced to zero and now is is hugely valuable, like multi-billion dollar industry. So I think you're going to see the same thing happen in in learning where you're going to have huge businesses destroyed in value. And then you're going to see um, cheaper free alternatives. And then you're going to see people innovate and grow new businesses that, that will be even more valuable in the long run. It's easy to predict or to make this assumption that all of the top brands with the most money are going to survive and all of the medium and lower end <laughs> players are going to die in this uh, kind of washout. Is is that necessarily the case for Khan? And, and, you know, if you look, I, I mean, you kind of work in higher ed? typical segment in higher ed. Yes. I mean, is this a moment where literally it's going to, at least for the middle, is it going to wash out pretty much any third, fourth tier school with like a medium brand that's not heard of around the world? Are those schools, unless they have like a massive... I think they're toast. Uh, ...kind of yeah. endowment to dip into, are they just going to die? Yeah, and I do think that. And the reason is because, you know, the, the institutions that have a large alumni base, um, which translate to endowment, and um, they have uh, research, right? So they have a, a, a big third source of revenue from government and in, in, in industry. Yep. They will survive and thrive because they have a diversified business model, I think. The right. schools that are tuition dependent are, are uh, already seeing tremendous pressure. Um, a third to a half of them are going to you know, merge or go out of business. Um, yep. and, and they'll be you know, different solutions available. Um, so, you know, that's, I think the reality of it, and we've already seen it. It's not like this is a prediction some have made like starting five, seven years ago that, and, and now we're seeing it just accelerated. Got it. My last question for Khan is this, uh, this whole topic, online learning is complicated. There's a lot going on. Where, where should, where should we go to stay up to date? Where do you go? what podcasts you listen to, what um, magazines you read, what books have come out, um, what websites, uh, where do you go? How do you do it? How do you track this field? How do you stay informed? Obviously, I'm going to link up your site. Yeah, for sure. I mean, one of the, um, you know, the so I love podcasts too. So um, I think it's called Future You and it's Michael Horn and Jeff Salingo. Um, so Wall Street Journal reporter and Michael Horn's an author and neighbor of mine. And they have a wonderful podcast um, that talks a lot about higher education, uh, but it's also K-12, adult learning, and they're, they're just phenomenal um, uh, experts in the industry. And they bring in some great, great guest speakers. So I think it's called Future You. I apologize if I get that wrong, but Michael Horn yep. and, and, uh, yep. and Jeff Slingo. Um, if you're interested in the higher ed space, um, there is uh, there are a bunch of blogs uh, around this. So there's um, you know higher education online. There's um, uh, the Chronicle of Higher Education. 
Um, so, I, you know, when it gets to adult learning, it's super fragmented. I and mean, you talked about like a two, $3 billion industry in higher ed. It's like tens of billions in, in the adult learning uh, world. Um, so it's much more fragmented. I can send you some links and we can, you know, throw some podcasts in there um, when you link to those as well. Sounds good. Well, Furkan, I'm going to let you go back to work and go back to your gym. You have a wonderful gym. This is one of the benefits of a visual. So we'll, we'll upload the video eventually, but you and I are, are looking at each other. So you see my attic studio and I get to see your, your gym. So thank you. Very <laughs> right, well. You exercise the mind, exercise it. the body. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thank that's you so great. much. This has been wonderful. I love the conversation. Um, and uh, I'm excited to, to, uh, to, to hear about all your other future topics. Perfect. Have a good one. All right. Take care. You too. You have just listened to episode 37 of the Futurized podcast with host Thrun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was the future of online learning. Our guest was Furkan Naziri, partner at Extension Engine, the online education platform consulting firm. In this conversation, we talked about what learning is all about, how COVID-19 both validates and facilitates online learning. We discuss online learning platforms, the best approaches at the moment, and where we are headed in the next decade. My takeaway is that online learning, as it was practiced for 20 years, was invalidated by COVID-19, and we don't yet have an answer to what it must become. Having said that, the best universities are doing something right. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. Futurize, preparing you to deal with disruption.